0: Welcome to this podcast brought to you by the Vatican Observatory Foundation. I'm your host, Bob Trembley. I'm a volunteer NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador, the first Vice President of the Warren Astronomical Society in Michigan, and an Internet Factotum for the Vatican Observatory Foundation. This podcast comes from a recording of one of our monthly full moon meetups with Vatican Observatory staff and Sacred Space Astronomy subscribers. Sacred Space Astronomy is the Vatican Observatory's online community, we have several astronomers and scholars who write articles on our website about astronomy, space science, and faith in science. Every full moon, the Vatican Observatory Foundation hosts a Zoom meetup for our sacred space astronomy subscribers. Typically, our guest will be a member of the Vatican Observatory staff or an affiliated researcher, and they'll tell us about their research and what they're doing and the journey that led them to the Vatican Observatory. Brother Guy Consolmagno, Director of the Vatican Observatory and President of the Vatican Observatory Foundation will talk with our guest, and our Sacred Space Astronomy subscribers can ask questions. This podcast was taken from the Full Moon Zoom Meetup on Monday, January 17, 2022. Our guest was Bill Higgins, an engineering physicist who works on radiation safety at Fermi National Accelerator Lab, Fermilab, a particle accelerator near Chicago. In his spare time, Bill loves to learn about spaceflight, astronomy, and planetary science. And as a volunteer NASA JPL solar system ambassador, he shares that knowledge through lectures and writings. Bill has been a mutual friend of Brother Guy and myself for decades. We share a large group of friends in the science fiction community.
1: Bill and I go back a long, long ways. One of the earliest moments I remember, and we probably met earlier than that, was in 1980, I was a postdoctoral fellow at MIT, and he had come with a group of mutual friends, including an old roommate of mine, to the World Science Fiction Convention in Boston that year. And I gave them a tour of the tunnels underneath MIT, trying to get them lost. And after every twist and turn underneath, crawling underneath all the buildings, I would say, all right, which way's the river? And as I recall, Bill, you were able to remember every turn until we got to the dome where the engineering library is. And after walking around one and three quarters times, we were all dizzy. Is that the way you remember it?
2: More or less, yes. It was a marvelous tour.
1: Yeah. Besides being a science fiction fan, Bill has a day job at Fermilab. And can you describe to us what you do?
2: I am a radiation safety physicist. So I am yeah. part of uh, a group that tries to keep people in radiation apart and m- minimize radiation in the environment. My so, job, it, I, I do some miscellaneous things, but most of my time is, is spent thinking about shielding. Uh, uh, we have con- concrete walls or... Uh, buried steel or lots and lots of dirt here and there we have miles and miles of tunnels so uh, um, and and there are there are particle beams running through vacuum pipes all through the all through these tunnels uh, we have the potential to produce uh, uh, radiation. So you know, a shower of particles, if the beam hits something uh, it's not supposed to hit. And we have to make sure that we would be safe if that kind of accident happens. So this job would be very easy if it was all buried in thick shielding, but uh, it's also true that all that equipment down in the tunnel like magnets and vacuum pumps and sensors and, uh, and radiation detectors all needs, uh, it needs wires, it needs pipes, it needs vacuum lines and, or cryogenic lines and so there are holes in the shielding and we have to we have methods of calculating um, uh, the passage of, uh, of radiation through holes and uh, and around bends and, and, and so-called labyrinths and so forth so uh, so we, we, we need to understand the dose that could potentially come out in an accident through any given hole and uh, and we have you know Databases and spreadsheets for that kind of stuff. So, have you
1: ever had the chance to, you know, have to tell some very, very important scientist with a very, very important billion-dollar program, "Sorry, no, you can't do that."
2: Yes, <laughs> uh, it is. We actually, all of this stuff would be a lot safer if they just didn't run their beams. <laughs> okay. So, but I had a wise boss. I learned this uh, this trade from, and uh, he re- kept reminding us that our job is to help people get their experiments done, uh, and that, uh, and so my my attitude is 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 always, oh, we found a problem here. Can we think of ways to mitigate it? And uh, there are there's a there are a bunch of techniques, and it. Uh, sometimes you have to bring bad yeah. news to the experimenters, but at least, you know, it's a, it's a mutual discussion about, well, mm-hmm. what if we do this? What if we do that? And there might be a delay of uh, a month or there might be some extra money that somebody needs to spend uh, or yeah. there might be some extra cleverness that we are called, of, called on to think, think of. But, uh, but those are the challenges of the job. And uh, sooner or later, we get most of this stuff done and then somebody publishes a paper uh, but uh, I'm one of many, many behind the scenes people like 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 the Vatican <laughs> telescope. We have lots of people thinking about water and power and vacuum and logistics of bringing supplies, let's say, let's say liquid nitrogen uh, uh, to places where it's needed and all that kind of stuff. And none of those people get their names on the particle physics papers, but all of those people are pretty essential to making it uh to, to making it happen, so I have I have uh, a deep feeling of sympathy for uh, for the folks on your mountain.
1: Uh, how long have you been doing this job? Um,
2: I've been at Fermi Lab since uh, nineteen seventy eight.
1: Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah,
2: uh, this is not the, the only thing I've done there. Like I was hired to make neutrino beams, and I did uh, I did that work for some years, and uh, so so I I have a background operating the, the, the beam lines or shepherding the particles as they, uh, as, as they go from the big accelerator and, and new particles get created and we try to deliver them to uh, experiments a couple miles down the pipe uh, and, the, uh, uh, and that was that was a good background to have when uh, when in the early 90s I was asked to become a safety guy and I already knew the ropes I knew how to do the systems I knew what it was like to be on the other side of People needing to deliver the beam and uh, waiting impatiently for the uh, for the safety people to to bless their uh, their work and so forth.
1: So that's um, all fascinating stuff. But of course, we're a bunch of astronomers and astronomy fans. And the reason I actually have you on here is because I know you've got an interest in astronomy.
2: Where did well, that? Before start? we, I, I wanted to say that that all the opinions I'm expressing about Fermi Lab are mine. Uh, and not the opinions of my employer, uh, Fermilab, or or the Department of Energy that Fermilab uh, is a contractor for. So you're listening to me, not uh, not to anything official.
1: And likewise, but, I yeah. don't speak for the Pope.
2: <laughs> right. Okay. It's uh, so. So
1: tell me, the, you, you've got this. You know we we're here because we're all interested in astronomy let us know a little bit about how your background in astronomy how did you get interested where did you grow up you know who first showed you the stars
2: i was born in rochester new york when i was eight i moved to uh detroit michigan and so that and and i guess when i was uh, when i was in the eighth grade or we we moved to miami florida So i've been around uh i've sampled the public libraries in a number of those towns that that's an important influence on my childhood uh and uh i got interested i i I guess I, i started as a as a maybe four or five year old guy interested in machines you know fire trucks and uh and 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 airplanes and things that made noise and uh and as I learned more about cool machines and fast vehicles, I realized that what made them work was science and, uh, and that, uh, that one needed to understand science and engineering in order to, uh, to understand this wider world of technology. And so that was kind of my, my doorway as a child into science. Uh, and uh, it was, we're, we're talking sort of 1960 or so here uh it was the space age it was the atomic age uh, uh, it was also the age of plastics and by about the age of seven i was convinced that being a physicist was a cool thing to be and maybe i might want to be one of those guys uh, uh, but i also loved space flight and astronomy it's all one big ball of fun and people were launching russian and american uh uh folks into, into space and, uh, and submarines are going under the North Pole. And, you know, you, I just love to learn about it.
1: The thing that I find fascinating is you've got this you know, science background, you're working at Fermilab, but you have a, an, a completely different life as a NASA solar system ambassador. Can you explain to us what that's all about?
2: Near the end of the 90s, nasa started a program they kind of figured out the following fact which is probably known to everyone here in every town wherever you go there is at least one person who loves astronomy so much that they'll put together some slides and go give a talk to a public library or a school or they they want or they'll drag their telescope out and let the let the public look through it. Uh, There is a there's it's a set of missionaries really I guess, and because there are people like that all over the place NASA started a program in which they would recruit such people to share information about NASA programs with, with, the, uh, with the public. It started with the Galileo mission, I think, and then they broadened it to many other programs, and there's a lot of them involved now. And this has been going for more than 20. I've, I've been a Solar System Ambassador for more than 20 years. Uh, You're obligated as, as, a, as a volunteer in this uh, to, uh, to do at least four, quote, events, unquote, a year in which you contact the public in some way, uh, I give talks a lot, but, but people might choose to do something else, uh, you know, set up an exhibit table down at the shopping mall or something like that, and the volunteer um, says at least four times a year in my community, I will, I will do some stuff that, that shares information about NASA with the public, and NASA, uh, no, no money changes hands, these people are all doing it on a volunteer basis, but NASA provides briefings uh, pretty frequently like teleconferences where we, uh, as the uh, ambassador volunteers can, uh, can get a presentation from a scientist involved with a mission or an engineer who's operating it or, uh, or an educator who's got some new product that you can, uh, share with, uh, with, with the public. And, uh, like I said, these people already existed. And NASA is just taking, getting the benefit of their existence.
1: So, how did you get into this public outreach in the first place? Was it uh, well,
2: school yeah. or what? I, I well, I, I always liked telling people something cool I knew about science, um, and so I am one of the people who was already doing this kind of stuff when NASA figured out at the end of the '90s that it was uh, it was a good idea.
1: Where uh, would you do it?
2: I think I, I would say my career. If you if you neglect uh, some. Um, Chalkboard talks about atomic energy that I was uh, asked to give to my fourth grade class. Then, um, uh, the, uh, the, the real, uh, the real start was about 1984 when, uh, I realized I knew about some cool stuff and, uh, I, I was regularly attending science fiction conventions, uh, and even sometimes getting involved in helping run them. And I realized, uh, people give talks about stuff at these conventions. They sit on panels and discuss topics. Um, maybe I could give a presentation about a cool thing I'm interested in. And I, I did a talk, uh, I, I learned how to make slides uh, out of images in books. And I gave a talk on the romantic age of rocketry, uh, the early development of rockets in, uh, in, in the beginning of the 20th century before, uh, before it kind of got professional. I was off and running. I gave that to to uh, an audience at Capricorn, I think, in Chicago around 1984, and uh, I kept coming back with new topics. I was I was reading Aviation Week. I was, uh, you know, paying attention when there were professional speakers coming through my lab. Uh, I uh, I read books and I could, you know, do a little homework and and uh, I I knew enough wow. physics and astronomy and I. Uh, handful of other sciences to kind of understand technical material about uh, about a space mission or about a planet or something and then uh, turn around and uh, and explain it in one hopes uh, clearer terms to uh, to to anybody uh, so there so, are th- sorry,
1: yeah there, there are three topics that you've done that I would never have heard of except for your talks and can you give us you know a two-minute summary of what the heck is a jacquard loom and why does it matter?
2: Yeah, well, I'm also interested in the history of science, which which is a natural branch off from reading all those books about science and technology as a kid, okay? The jacquard loom is the the scheme invented around 1800 uh, in France for uh, taking away some of the tedious work of making Uh, an exact pattern when you're weaving something uh, it's a regular loom with a, a a mechanism added to read um or to to feed in the uh, punch cards with holes in them and have those control which hook is lifting up which thread in your loom and uh if you have enough of these cards, you can make a beautiful uh, pattern and you can reproduce this pattern over and over uh, because you can use the cards over again the next time you set up the loom. And uh, okay, so well, that's a jacquard loom, right? Computers, as we understand them, were invented basically in the 1940s. But there was a guy in the 1830s who had a vision of this stuff, Charles Babbage, who who was a, a, a polymath who did many, many other things Babbage had this idea that maybe machines could do computations. And he designed some machines to, uh, to do calculations. And uh, And he looked around and the, the weavers were using the loom, and he decided that that would be a good mechanism to feed inf- information in his machines. He never built the machine that would do that actually, but uh, it's, it's a great white, what might have been of history and I love might-have-bands of technological history, so I got interested in the Jacquard loom, and I wound up. For, there's, there's a, you know, I can do 20 minutes on this, <laughs> right? But, but, but there's a, there, there's a PowerPoint.
1: <laughs> One of the uh, things that, of course, many of us on this love to do is watch old movies, old science fiction movies. Last night we saw an episode or two of Zombies of the Stratosphere, which was a. Uh, a serial involving uh, aliens, including a very, very young Leonard Nimoy uh, invading the Earth. And our hero had a rocket belt. What can you tell us about rocket belts?
2: Uh, A rocket belt is the name that Bell Aerospace gave to the jetpack. Any of us would call this thing a jetpack, a a backpack with rocket motors attached to it. But um, for some reason, they decided it was a belt in Niagara Falls, New York. So uh, the rocket belt first lifted a person into the air for a untendered flight in April of 1961. So just about the time I was becoming attentive to news and, uh, and information about the future and so forth, here was this thing flying around that was a wonder of the age, right? And so I was always interested in the rocket belts and I wrote a little bit about them uh, uh, on the internet in the uh, eighties or nineties or something. But in 2006, I learned there was a, going to be a a conference to celebrate the rocket belt. And they brought together the old engineers and, and test pilots who had been involved with the original rocket belt with a bunch of people who were building new rocket belts in their garages. Uh, so I got to be uh, for one weekend. I was with the jetpack people, and I learned a lot about that, and enough to you know make it, make go out and make a talk and explain uh, the jet jetpack. So they actually
1: and, uh, built these things that people actually flew with them.
2: I met the guy who flew the first one. Could you? How long? How far? Uh, <laughs> not long, not <enough>. far. <laughs> it's it's a marvelous device of an elegant design. And it works very well, but it can. It, it, the, the propellant that a person could carry is all the propellant you got. And this is enough. Uh, this heavy thing on your back with the rocket engines attached has, has, uh, has enough propellant to keep a person in the air for at most about 30 seconds. A really safe flight is about 20 or 22 seconds. This is really not a very practical flying machine. And Bell tried to make it, it find ways to extend the flight and try to find ways that that, that persuade. Armies or police forces or whatever that they really needed something that would fly a person for twenty seconds. There, there was about a decade where they were trying to promote this thing, and uh, and they swapped it swapped in a jet motor uh, at one point, and the, that could fly somebody for three minutes, but that's still not very practical. And I just you know it didn't work out, but there was one thing the jet belt is the rocket belt was good for, and that is everyone loves to watch it. So if you you could always get a crowd to watch a rocket belt guy fly, and so this was a tremendous public relations tool for Bell Aerospace. And they, the 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 rocket belt guys flew at Disneyland and flew uh, at uh, you know supermarket shopping mall openings and and whatnot all uh, all around uh, America and and sometimes other countries uh, throughout the sixties uh, and. It left a bunch of people, who, young people who were so fascinated that eventually they wound up building their own copies of the rocket belt. Not many of them, but the rocket belt had a second life in the 1980s and flew before President Reagan and a crowd of thousands at the opening of the 1984 Olympics. I met the guy who did that.
1: You're talking again about public outreach and public connection. And this is something you've been doing now for nearly 40 years. Over that time, um, what's the most common question you get, especially if it's an astronomy related talk?
2: I really can't think. I, I, there's not, not anything that pops out as a question I'm tired of hearing because I have to answer it over and over again. In fact, I give talks to crowds of people, some of them know a lot about astronomy, some of them know a little about astronomy, but they're all smart people who, who ask thoughtful questions. Uh, and even when it's a question that's, that shows a lot of ignorance of, uh, of, of the scientific principles, it's, it's usually a, uh, a sensible, logical question to ask. So I can't really say there's been uh, anything that, uh, that's common. Uh, the, the most recent version or you know, commonly encountered question is when you tell people a lot about the James Webb Space Telescope, they will ask, can people fly up and fix it if it breaks? The answer is it's not designed to be fixed that way. They instead chose to design lots and lots and lots of reliability and testing into it, and we all crossed our fingers. Uh, The James Webb Telescope will run out, it requires, unlike the, the, the Hubble, for complicated reasons, requires propellant. So it's going to use up its fuel someday, even if it if it's all working, it would be nice if it, if somebody could refuel it. And that seems like not completely impossible, but it's certainly not designed to do it.
1: A- you're interested. We're all interested in the space missions. Um, I'm envious because you got to do something I never was able to do, which was to be there at a critical moment in a space mission. Can you tell us about that?
2: Uh- I was fascinated, as I guess probably everybody was, with the Voyager missions. Uh, the uh, Voyager One, Voyager Two, launched in 1977, and uh, and took advantage of a special alignment of the planets so that uh, they could actually visit four different uh, uh, giant planets uh, between the spacecraft uh, and uh, go to Jupiter and use Jupiter's gravity to to bend the your course to go on to Saturn, and uh, and from there, Voyager One went off into deep space, and Voyager Two went on to Uranus and then to Neptune. It was a fantastic thing, and every every time there was a mission, I I would hear that they would sometimes invite uh, science fiction VIPs and 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 other uh, science. Uh, World characters to come to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory during the days of the uh, of of the, the planetary flyby and and get a glimpse of of Jupiter in detail or Saturn in detail uh, and uh, it was sounded really exciting and I kept hearing the stories of people that had had done this and I really decided that I wanted to be one of those people and after the Uranus uh, uh, encounter of 1986 I began to scheme. To somehow get to be there when Voyager flew by Neptune, I can't. I couldn't be at Neptune, but I could be in California, maybe if I knew the right people and or pulled the right strings, or somehow privilege smiled upon me or whatever. And uh, I after after uh, I, I managed to find that the National Space Society was running a a, a kind of journalistic operation to cover the Neptune flyby in a most peculiar way. And I argued that I, what what I just said before, I like, I can understand the science about this stuff and I can turn around and explain it to the public. You need a guy like me on your team. And they said, yes. So I went out to, uh, Pasadena and we, and, and I, I joined the, the, the seasoned, uh, um, National Space Society reporting people uh, on on a an operation called well let's see do I want to tell this story at length I don't know yeah, sure sure okay yeah. the peculiar operation was this they ran the once upon a time there was something called 900 numbers nine uh, the area code 900 telephone numbers were introduced I don't know I guess in the 80s it's an 80s thing uh, where where for for services where you would call this number and you would pay so many cents a minute uh in order to to uh, to enjoy the the service it's like if there was somebody who was providing recorded jokes you could go call, dial in you know listen to a couple jokes for a dollar a minute and you would uh and you would hang up and it would be added to your telephone bill nss knew that Lots of people were interested in space, so they had a, an operation called Dial a Shuttle, where their people would set up in the press room, along with all the other journalists of the world, uh, when a shuttle mission was going to fly, and they would they would have a phone line, and they would uh, they would be continuously. On the microphone, or continuously playing tapes to uh, to explain what was going on in the mission, and when there was uh, audio available between the astronauts and the ground, they would put live uh, audio on this uh, on the dial the shuttle line. And people who really, really wanted to hear more about the shuttle could listen to the shuttle astronauts uh, uh, talking. It was, and and during periods when the astronauts weren't talking, the NSS announcers would explain the scientific payload of the mission or explain what the next spacewalk was gonna be or whatever. Uh, And uh, so the decision that Nenesis had to make was, should we do this for Voyager Neptune? Because we've got an operation that we know how to do, but uh, there are no astronauts aboard Voyager Neptune. It would entirely have to be people explaining science on the phone line uh maybe cover uh, we could you could run the press conferences live et cetera, et cetera. and uh and and so and the the people the staff would have to be people who maybe took the scientific jargon from the press conferences and wrote uh real quickly wrote uh wrote language uh, into a uh a kind of radio story that that uh, that uh, that could be read uh, and maybe recorded uh to explain uh Neptune's magnetosphere, or new discoveries about rings around Neptune, or uh, what we learned about the moons that day, or what have. You. And uh, that was I was part of the team that was doing that. Uh, they were all really experienced at dial a shuttle, and I was newbie. But I knew some science, and I I did a lot of homework beforehand, and I actually got to be at on, on the Caltech campus. During this, and I even made a visit to uh, to JPL, like, so I can say I set foot on JPL campus uh, and heard their press conference during the uh, during, during the the Neptune flyby.
1: So, of these people and of these places, I know you've discovered and uncovered all sorts of wonderful events, places, um, museums. <laughs> What's the three coolest places you've ever been to?
2: that there's the cheap joke answer to that because I was just talking about Neptune. And I loved that so much that I wanted to do the same thing. It took a lot of years, but somebody sent a spacecraft to Pluto. So I managed to get involved in outreach, this time assisting uh, NASA um, and uh, and the teachers that were uh, that were working uh, for for NASA at uh, for the New Horizons encounter with Pluto, and two years later they found another target on um, an, an asteroid, a, technically a Kuiper belt object uh, uh, called which eventually got the name Arakov. And I showed up again and helped somebody else, it, it, C- Christian Reddy of. Uh, the YouTube channel, Launchpad Astronomy. Uh, uh, I helped Chris do his live remote from, uh, from, from the, the Arrokoth encounter. And that was a lot of fun. But it means that I've been to the, the, I've, the, the three coolest places I've been have, have certainly, or I've experienced have been Neptune, Pluto, and Arrokoth. Uh.
1: <laughs> but here on earth, you've, you've, the two of us you know, spent a couple of days in Florence and after I had to go on, you found some bizarre museums there that I've never heard of. What are some of the real gems of museums that you would tell people about that we may not know about?
2: We we had we had bought the, the special card that allows you access to a whole bunch of museums in the city of Florence. And we had seen all the big ones. And I put you on the bus, and I my card still had some days on it so I just uh, uh, so 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 I wa- I was looking at other museums on the map uh, I had seen lots and lots of, of art and uh, and and I, I thought maybe it was time there's another little science Museum a non-famous science Museum here there's the famous Gal- one there's we'll the that. Galileo
1: Museum but yes. we had already gone to that
2: we had been right. there you showed me around the Galileo Museum the, uh, the the but there's something called the Institute of Science and Technology Uh, and I said, what's that? And I went there and, uh, it's a museum and it has some, some rooms with some science stuff in them, some artifacts. Uh, uh, and there, there was a room where they were, uh, where they had like an elementary school class in and teachers were running them through hands-on exercises, like, uh, like in so many science museums I've been to, but it was kind of small and, you know, not that interesting. Uh, and I started, but, but, you know, it was all right. And I started talking to the person at the desk and the person at the desk said, would you like to see the special collection? And um, I don't know what it is about me that makes me look like a person who ought to be asked whether he, should, whether he wants to see the special collection. But if someone asks you a question like that, you say, yes. <laughs> and she got out the big key and went we went down the hall to a room where the door was locked, and she opened it up, and there was the special collection. It was fabulous. It was amazing. And the story is that mm, in towards the 19, in, in the nineteenth century, Italy was a country that was moving, as all countries were, from you know more agrarian to more industrial. Uh, there were there were it was the age of steam, right? Uh, electricity was beginning to be important, and uh, and Italy was uh, was one of the countries at the forefront of the industrial Re- revolution. But Italy needed lots of people to work the machines and design new ones, and engineers who would build dams and bridges and that kind of stuff. So um, they they there were there were there was a school that started to train young technical people, and for some reason, these folks had the resources to buy all of the very best laboratory, classroom demonstration equipment that was made in 19th century Europe. Uh, the instrument makers of Paris or uh, or London or or, or Germany um, sold these guys uh, lots and lots of equipment uh, to demonstrate electricity and hydraulics and uh, and optics and whatnot and. Um, they quit using this stuff sort of at the beginning of the 20th century, maybe, and it's preserved. It's still there. Um, maybe some of it needed to be fixed up. I don't know. But in, in recent decades, they have fixed it up. And there's this vast collection of antique demonstration instruments and, uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, uh, all, all behind that locked door. And uh, I wasn't allowed to take pictures of it, but I was allowed to wander through Ed and admire it all, and it was completely fabulous. And then my guide mentioned that they had a YouTube channel, uh, and the the institute uh, has a, uh, I think it's called Florence FST, and uh, that YouTube channel holds I don't know eighty or so short videos. Where the expert curators take out these machines and demonstrate how a spark coil uh, or, or the, the cladding patterns of acoustics or uh, you know lots of things work. So so I uh, I wrote a series of the of 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 little uh, I don't know glosses on the YouTube videos for uh, for the, the 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 Vatican Observatory Foundation uh, website some years ago because. They were they were just fun to do. I, I thought more people should see these this wonderful work, these wonderful videos. And this is one small way in which I could share, share this cool discovery with uh with with more people. So you know I started I, I just yeah I haven't added a whole lot to uh to to what they you know, to, to the beautiful work they have done but at least you know I've I've drawn people's attention to it.
1: What I want to mention here is your outreach has been an inspiration to me uh, to see how you will interact with different kinds of audiences uh, from school kids to smart aleck science fiction fans to the kind of uh, gentle grown-ups who still build their own rockets and kind of show up with their rockets to your talk because they want you to be able to see what they've done. And your patience with As you say, the questions that come from intelligent people who just haven't had a chance to learn has been an inspiration, but also the need and the ability to do outreach. Um, The kind of stuff you've done is what got us into the business of putting together the faith and science uh, resources that we have and the blog that we started. You are one of the early contributors to the blog.
0: That's a wrap for this podcast. Our audio editors were Brother Guy, Council and myself, Bob Trembley. You can listen to our other podcasts and read our posts on the web at vaticanobservatory.org. If you'd like to attend our full moon meetups live, join our sacred space astronomy community, also at vaticanobservatory.org. Clear skies, everyone!